All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Hebrews is way towards the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 28 and 29. That's on page 1009 in your Bibles, if you need one in front of you. They're back from Florida, hey guys. The snowbirds are migrating north again. You know that it's safe to go outside again when they start showing up, everybody. (laughs) All right. Um, I last week said we're going to continue in the Genesis series, and I decided to throw you a curveball. And let me explain why. I'm sure you're aware of this. Maybe not. You could go and observe Congress if you wanted. In session, you could actually go to your Congress uh, men and get a pass and sit in the gallery and observe exactly what's going on. Uh, and if you watched, and you could do it on C-SPAN as well, but nobody watches C-SPAN. Um, you could go day after day to the gallery and you could get a real good sense of the direction of our country. You could also just go in and make an appointment, let's say with the president, if he could get into him, and just ask him and he could tell you point blank where we're going. Same is true of a church. Uh, we don't have a gallery for elder meetings, but if we did, um, you could overhear us talking. You could sit there weekly and understand Direction Church. You come here every Sunday and listen to sermons, and if you listen, listen carefully and, and, and listen through the lens of, all right, I want to listen for where we're going as a church, you could get that. But every so often, I think it's more helpful just to come and flat out hear very directly uh, what our initiatives are. Kind of what, what are our big values? Where are we going as a church? And so in the next five weeks, that's what I want to do. I'm going to spell out for you kind of five major areas that have our attention as elders, that if you were listening to our elder meetings, you would hear us talking about these things frequently. These things have our attention. Um, and so that's what I want to talk about. So this is going to be kind of mission and vision sort of stuff. I have been here as a pastor just about three and a half years. And as any leader who is worth his salt will lead, I'm having an impact on the direction of our church. And I just want to tell you where that is, very plainly if I can. So today what I want to do is talk about worship. We talk about this frequently, so this shouldn't be new to you. But I want to talk about very plainly why worship is so important and why we're focusing on it so much and the direction of our worship. Next week, we're going to be talking from 1 Timothy 3 about raising up godly men. The following week, uh, why we focus so much on young families. And then after that, we're going to be talking about small groups and hospitality and relationship. And then fifth and finally, we're going to be focusing on the Word of God and, and its importance. So today, we're in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 20 and 29. I'm going to start at verse 18 and then read to the end of the chapter. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18, verse 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to sprinkled blood that speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, these words are hard and yet glorious. Praise you that you're a God who has given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And yet we long to offer you, in light of that, the right worship of our God who is a consuming fire. And so, God, teach us your word. Teach me your statutes that we may know them. God, your, your word, your commandments are above gold and finer gold. And therefore, God, we want to consider all your precepts to be right. And so, God, we need your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So by worship here... Uh, This term in the Greek in verse 28, offer God acceptable worship, the term worship there um, is referring, if you look at the context here, primarily to our response towards God on Sunday morning. Uh, Of course, worship implies all of our life. It means everything that we do, and yet what you do in your weekly life in regards to God is always set by your worship of God on Sunday morning, okay? Your conception of God and how you deal with God is formed by the kind of God that is presented on Sunday morning. And there is only one God, and He is holy and just, and we'll see that. So we put a lot of emphasis on our worship, particularly our singing. That's what I'm going to be talking mostly about today. A lot of time at Pine Grove and energy is being spent on growth and reform on songs. We do a lot here. It consumes a lot of effort. Um, and, and one of the simple reasons is we were created for this. You were made to worship God. God says in the book of Isaiah, everything that I have created and made, everything that I have made for my glory. Okay? You were created to glorify God. One of the primary ways that we glorify God as his redeemed children is to gather on Sunday morning and worship him. The Bible, if you'd read it cover to cover through that lens of worship, you'd see that the Bible is filled with a record of God's faithful gathering to praise Him. And it's almost always in response to His salvation. God saves them, God rescues them, and they respond in song. This is a theme throughout Scripture. God saves, God rescues, and the God's people sing. But we're not only focusing on worship at Pine Grove because it's what we're made for, but because worship in American churches like ours has fallen on very hard times. It is not what it should be. 
it lacks the punch, it lacks the power, it lacks the zeal, it is in many ways very impotent. And let me just explain why. So what I'm trying to do here is say, we're spending a lot of time on worship, and in order to do so, it's because of response to some things that we see as lacking, even failures and sins in the church. I want to describe those. I want to raise your level of uh, buy-in to this by trying to describe some things that that I think are rather obvious to you. So I'm going to raise the urgency a bit here. One of the issues, especially since the 90s, is the issue of what some call the attractional method of worship. Um, If you're familiar with the larger church scene, there's a church in northern Chicago that in the 80s, well, maybe started in the 70s, but especially in the late 80s and 90s, uh, talked about being seeker-sensitive. Anybody familiar with that term? Is that new? It's kind of new to you? Not new? Sleeping, you don't care? It's not new. What they did is they tried to build a church centered around a worship service where they tried to figure out what unbelievers, those outside the church, wanted what their felt needs were, and then they built a worship service around that. Does that make sense? So they were trying to attract people from outside the church who are not members of the church, not Christians, although maybe they grew up in church or something. But So they were trying to attract a clientele. They took a very business approach to church. We have a certain clientele who has certain felt needs, and we want to build our worship service in order to attract that clientele. Now, in of itself, the motivation to reach and be thoughtful in regards to those who are apart from Christ is a good thing. That's a right motive. Uh, We shouldn't laugh at that. We shouldn't deride that. And yet making that your primary focus in worship is far less than biblical. And it'll end up destroying the very thing that you try to do. Now, unfortunately, when this happens in our day and in all culture, the vast majority of people who are willing to come to church are often women. You've noticed this. The demographic that isn't coming to church are men. Especially men, let's say, 30 and older. They're largely leaving the church. And so then, if you're trying to build a church that seeks to attract those outside, and the primary ones who are coming to your programming are women and the children, you're going to start forming your worship service to attract them. Because the thought was, okay, if we can get mom, maybe we can get the kids. And if we get mom and the kids, maybe we'll finally get the father or the husband. This is why we had things like Sunday school and Awan and and certain things like that, youth group. Because you serve kids, serve wife, maybe you'll get the husband eventually, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We'll see next week, in fact, when you get the men, you'll get the wives and the children. But if you try to get the wives and the children, you rarely get the men. Or they'll come and they'll just sit quietly and leave quickly. 
It won't have much impact. But that's not the main issue with that attractional sort of church. The main issue is who is our audience in worship? To put it crassly, who is our client in worship? It's God. I don't know who just said that. I tell you what, our kids are so smart and godly. It's incredible here. It's God. Look at verse 28. This is the point of the sermon. Let us offer to non-church people acceptable worship. Is that what it says? No. Let us offer to God. And so it's been said before, we have an audience of one in worship, don't we? It's God. It's God. It's God. There are other issues in worship. Some of those issues are pastors and elders exercise very little um, oversight, actual leadership in worship. They often just hand it off to musicians because they think we're not musical and so we need the musicians to be in charge. But what, when you leave here on Sunday morning, what do you remember three days later? A song that we were singing or the actual things that I said? What sticks with you? It's always songs. On Wednesday, I'll be walking around singing one of our Sunday morning songs. Always. I, I don't even remember what I preached. Right? Songs in the church are meant to teach. We put truth to a melody so it sticks. And so it digs down deep in your soul because it gets to places that preaching and teaching don't get. That's the whole purpose of it. We are concerned with our feelings on Sunday morning. We are concerned with our affections, but we're concerned with the truth getting there. It's what sticks with you. But because the people who are most trained to care for you in teaching, pastors and elders, are no longer involved in the music, there, is, there has been a, a, lot, a void in the truthfulness of our music on Sunday morning. It's not as robustly biblical as it should be. So we should be very careful to consider what we're singing. Because it's teaching. Because it's teaching in ways that stick with you, unlike anything else will stick with you. This is huge. Now, on that note of what we're singing, I find that contemporary modern worship songs... What they sing is actually true for the large part. If you listen to, let's say, 89Q or K-Love or whatever, um, the songs that are sung, if you really, if you're not just listening to them to sing along, but if you actually sit down with a pen and a paper or pencil or whatever and actually just try to think, is what the singer is singing true? Is it right? Is it biblically faithful? Largely it will be. Okay? But, but what you, if you're thoughtful, begin to notice is it sings a very narrow part of biblical truth. Okay? One of the things we can do with the Bible is we can organize them into, category, into truth categories. Okay? You have a, a part of biblical truth that we call, let's say, the doctrine of God, who God is. He's triune. He's holy. Another doctrine in the Bible, a category, would be man. 
We're creating God's image, but we're fallen. Another category would be Christ, who he is and what he's done to save us. Another category would be the church, its leadership, its purpose, its function. Another category would be end times, what's going to happen when Christ comes back. So you can kind of divide the Bible up if you want by category. Okay? Of modern contemporary songs, just just largely, I don't know what percentage, but they're just mainly about one small category, God's love and saving sinners through Christ. Every song is being written about this. Okay? You don't see much of the doctrine of God, Trinity, holiness. You don't see any, you can't hardly find a song about the church. Very few with a robust doctrine of man and sin. It, it's just all very narrow. Now, if we were to re- relate our singing to food, we want the doctrine of God's love and saving sinners in Christ to be the main dish. It's the meat and the potatoes. It's not a side dish. It's the main dish. So we want to sing songs like that a lot. But if that's all we're ever singing, we're neglecting much of why we need God's love in Christ. Because God is holy. Because we're fallen in sin. Because he's redeeming a church who will forever last. But we're only getting one narrow slice of it. And so... There is an issue in the modern worship diet. It's very, and then, and, and here's a little stronger critique, the singing of God's love is often very sentimental. It's not very weighty. It doesn't have much depth. It's very repetitive. Again, what it's singing is true, but if that's your only diet, you're going to end up being malnourished as a Christian. In fact, a lot of times what you begin impressed with is God loves me because I'm so lovable. And, and you know that's not true. I know that's not true of me. God doesn't love me because he was impressed with me. God didn't send his son to die on a bloody cross because I'm so nice. He sent his son to die on a bloody cross because he's holy and I'm wicked. Because he's righteous and I'm unrighteous. Because he's my creator, and I am in rebellion against him. And his love, instead of cursing me, cursed his son. But you don't sing those kind of things in modern worship songs very often. So this is why we're putting so much focus on worship. Because it is given to the church to build you up in the truth of God, and we want to do that as best as we can, and even more so, because we are concerned, I am concerned, that too often we make man the primary focus of our worship instead of God. We make what you want and what you feel you need more than what God says in his word. So another way to say it is John Piper has said, we want God-centeredness in our worship, not man-centeredness. We want to sing all of the truth about God robustly. All right, so that, that's all kind of leading up to this text. Yeah, that's all just introduction. (laughs) So you should be asking, all right, what is acceptable to God in worship? And the good news is, he tells us. God is very kind to us, brothers and sisters. He never leaves us guessing. He, He doesn't do what 
husbands and wives sometimes do with each other is get mad for uncommunicated expectations that then are not met. You ever do that with your spouse? You get upset with your spouse because he or she didn't do something that you didn't ask, but yet demand. God isn't like that at all. He doesn't say, offer me acceptable worship and then leave us guessing as to what that might look like. He actually tells us very plainly. So this text defines then what acceptable worship is, and then, of course, the opposite is true, what is unacceptable worship. And here's something I just want to get into your head. I think we forget this. There is such a thing as worship offered to God, even with right intentions, that is unacceptable to him. If God here says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. It's all over the Bible. The clearest example of unacceptable worship was when Aaron's sons thought they'd get creative in their worship and offered him what God called strange fire and God consumed them with fire. Their worship was rightly intentioned but unacceptable to God. And so we worship a God, as it says in verse 29, who is a consuming fire. And so we want to be biblically careful in the kind of worship we offer him. We want to be biblically careful in the kind of worship we offer him. Now, just a couple things there. When we talk about acceptable worship, we're not talking about perfect worship. The only people who offer acceptable worship to God are sinners saved by grace. So, your worship isn't acceptable because you're perfect. You understand? God isn't here saying, I want acceptable worship from people who got it all figured out and offer me 100% perfectly pure, all the time acceptable worship. The only people who can offer acceptable worship are those who need Christ's death and burial and resurrection because they're so stinking sinful. There's only clay feet in here. There's only people who don't get it here. There's only imperfect sinners here who need Christ. So the acceptability of our worship isn't because we end up doing it perfectly. We sing all the right notes at all the right times or something. Another way to say it is we've got to let the Bible define what acceptable worship is here. And so God tells us that the kind of ex- worship that is acceptable is worship offered with reverence and awe. You'll notice that the Bible often does that. What you and I probably want here are a list of tasks of like five things that if we do these things, then our worship will be good and acceptable. We want check boxes here. But God always gets to the heart, doesn't he? He always gets right to the core of who you are, not do you do these things. Acceptable worship is worship offered with a person who has a right internal sense of reverence and awe of God. Another way to say it opposite, Jesus once said um, that your, your lips praise me, but your hearts are far from me. They got all the externals right, they checked all the boxes, but their hearts were far from him. They had no reverence and awe of him, and so their worship was blasphemous. 
So acceptable worship is worship that comes from a grateful heart. See that in verse 28. Let us be grateful. Acceptable worship is worship that comes from a grateful heart for the gospel and is offered with reverence and awe of God. Okay? Acceptable worship is worship offered to God that comes from a grateful heart for the gospel, for Christ, who died and rose to save us, and, is, and then responds to that to God with reverence and awe. That's acceptable to God. Now, we don't use these terms very often, reverence and awe. As I said in the children's center, you don't see that one on Sesame Street. In fact, I just don't think we like it. Americans can be very disrespectful, especially to those in authority. Um, Reverence and awe aren't something that we think highly of as far as like character traits or values, because we're so focused on equality. And yet we all know that there is a hierarchy of authority. You are to give your father a reverence that you give nobody else. If you don't have a right reverence in all of your boss at work, it's not going to go well for you because he has more authority than you do. If children don't respect and honor their mother, that's, that's awful. And so we, we want to learn to think highly of these terms. So these terms define what God accepts in worship. These terms define what God accepts in worship. And I think to understand them, let's just quickly walk through these verses, 18 to 29. The context of this reverent and awe worship of God is in, it's going to sound strange, in, in this issue of two mountains contrasted in verses 18 to uh, 23, and then a warning. I want to walk through is these two mountains that are contrasted and then this warning. And that helps us understand what reverence and awe is. You'll notice in um, verse 22, but you have come. The word but. The word but there is contrasting verses 18 to 21, which describes one mountain, Sinai, with this new mountain, Zion, in verse 22. So he's contrasting what God's people delivered from Egypt experienced at Mount Sinai and the kind of worship there with the kind of worship at Mount Zion that we have now in Christ. I know this is theologically deep and biblically rigorous. And you stayed up too late last night. And you didn't get a good breakfast. And the kids were on a pain on the way to church. And now the pastor's talking about two mountains. What is going on here? Just track. This is big. This is so big. Okay? Humor sometimes helps you wake up. All right. So the first mountain is described in verses 18 to 21, and it was awful. Okay? Israel's delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they come to Mount Sinai, where God comes down and gives them this law. And it says, 
They couldn't touch it. It was blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. A sound of a trumpet that, and a voice that made the hearers beg for no more. They're crying uncle. It was such an awful, terrifying experience that they're saying, no more. Be quiet. It was awful. They couldn't endure it in verse 20. Even if an animal touched the mountain, they were to be put to death. If one of the worshipers got too close to the mountain, they were to be executed. It was so terrifying a sight that the mediator, Moses, cried out, I tremble with fear. I don't even know how to paint this picture for you. I mean, it's dark alley alone at night and six big, gnarly-looking dudes and you alone. It's terrifying. This is terrifying. But then he says, but you, the you there, are believers in Christ. But you, but church. That's not your mountain. That's not your experience in worship. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And look at what it's like. To innumerable innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal. Feasting. Celebrating. Joy. Happiness. Lots of food. Wine. Good company. Mount Sinai. Terrifying, awful stop. Mount Zion party. Okay? That's what we've come to in Christ. Verse 23. To the assembly of the firstborn, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Mount Sinai, just one small group led out of Egypt. Mount Zion. Saints from beginning to end of all cultures, all nations, all tongues, all gathering together in unity and celebration. Which one do you want? Mount Zion, you've come to God. Mount Sinai, you you came to a terrifying voice that you couldn't even get close to. Now in Mount Zion, you get to come right to God, who's judge, and you still get to come to him. Judge is father. The judge of his people is the father of his people. It's different in Christ. It's better. And finally to verse 24. Mount Zion, you come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant, Sinai, he's done away with. You've come to a new covenant. Covenant signed with his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, Cain and Abel, first two children of Adam and Eve. Cain murdered Abel. Cain er murdered Abel because Abel was righteous. Jesus was murdered because he was righteous. And Jesus' blood speaks a much better word than Abel's blood. Abel couldn't do anything for you. Jesus' blood can actually save you unto God forever. Which one do you want? (laughs) So we have come to this new Jerusalem in Christ. To this festive, feasting, celebrating worship. But then he follows that up with a warning. 
That's what the Bible does to you all the time. You're coming to a feast. Woohoo! See that you do not refuse him. See that you do not refuse him. Why? Because if the people at Mount Sinai did not escape when Moses spoke to them on earth, how much less will you escape if you reject him who's speaking to you from heaven? You think Sinai was terrifying. Wait till you meet Jesus coming back. See what he's doing? This is why I cannot understand why people think the Old Testament is bad and the New Testament is good. The Old Testament is bad God and the New Testament is good God. He is saying here that this Mount Zion, which is so happy and festive, the judgment coming will be much more severe than Sinai. So don't refuse Christ. He's warning you. They had people in the church that they're writing to who were refusing to listen to Jesus. These are people who had confessed Jesus but won't follow Jesus. These are people who all day long will worship Jesus with their lips but their heart are far from him. Right? So these, these two kingdoms is followed with this strict warning. And that warning is to lead to worship. <laughs> and that warning is to lead to worship. How? Verses 26, I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. There is a judgment coming. <clears throat> there is a judgment coming. But all who are in Christ have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Okay? Jesus, when he rose from the dead and spoke to his disciples, said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm king. And, and Jesus is going to conquer the world. He's going to shake everything down. In Psalm 2, it says he rules the rod of iron, and all nations that will not accept him, he's going to hammer into dust. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation, it shows Jesus coming in judgment, and his robes are saturated with the blood of his enemies. He's going to shake things. He's going to sift them. But those who are in Christ are part of a kingdom that will never be shaken. They won't be touched by it. So we're not at Sinai. We're at Zion. It's happy. It's festive. But there's a warning. And if you are in Christ and you remain faithful to Christ, you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us offer worship that is acceptable to our king. You see? You see? What does this have to do with our singing? A right view of God leads to right worship of God. And if in our church we deny these hard truths of God, the hard truths of Mount Sinai, the hard truths of the warning of God, the hard truths that God is a consuming fire, we will never worship God acceptably. Right biblical truth leads to right biblical worship. That's why we focus so much on this. You and I are prone in our sin to coast away from acceptable worship. If we're just left to ourselves, if we don't keep a close eye on this, if we're not intentional and faithful and prayerful and digging into this, our worship will become unacceptable to God and look at the judgment for that. Another way to say it is, we as elders and pastors love you and we want to lead and teach and point you in a direction that we offer to God every Sunday and in our lives worship that pleases God and note that please. 
He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, which means what? You can actually offer your creator worship that is acceptable to him. Isn't that incredible? You. You can offer the one true living triune God who is holy, who the highest heavens cannot contain. You can actually offer to him, you, to him, worship that makes him glad. (laughs) You can do that. Nobody else other than church, the church can do that. You understand that? Nobody else in the whole world, all time, can offer God worship that he accepts, that is pleasing to him, that he enjoys, except his people. You can do that. What a privilege we're in. What an exalted place we're in. I mean, he has set us above the angels in this. He has crowned us with glory and honor in this. And so our response should be, okay, we are going to do our darndest, work our hardest to offer God worship that is pleasing to him because we will not offer him who did so much for us anything less. We will not. If you have a really good boss who leads you well, who pays you well, would you put in a half rear-ended days of work for that kind of person? Not at all. You'd want to figure out what pleases him and work really hard to do it. How much more God? How much more God? Now, one of the criticisms of churches, including ours, is what does it have to do with a lot of evangelism? Isn't the church supposed to be all about evangelism? Why are we focused so much on internal things like worship when the whole world is going to hell? When my neighbors don't know Christ? What does this have to do with evangelism? Well, worship that is aimed at being acceptable to God is evangelistic. If you were to read the Bible, let's say Acts chapter 2, which is very evangelistic, and look at the response of the people to the preaching. So there's unbelievers in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a very hard sermon. Does anybody remember their response? What do they cry out to Peter? What shall we do to be saved? They realize God is holy. God is their creator. They have high treason and sin against this God. And they are so stricken in fear before this God that they cry out, what shall we do to be saved? They have a a right terror of God. They understand God rightly. So much of our evangelism tries to hide that about God. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to turn people off. Have you heard that? Where in the Bible do you see a concern for not turning people off with the truth of God? You don't. Now, we're not supposed to be jerks. We're not supposed to make it hard for people to come to Christ. But we unintentionally make it very difficult for people to come truly to Christ because we will not talk about the hard things of God and especially about sin. And that tone is set in worship. We are doing this kind of worship 
so that you might fear God more than man. And what is more paralyzing to evangelism than you being afraid of people? Why don't you proclaim the gospel to your neighbors? Because you're terrified of what they'll think of you. You fear them more than you fear God. And so we want a worship service where we learn to fear God so that we're not afraid of man, so that we'll tell man that they're sinners in need of Christ. That's what this is for. And then we want you to invite in your lost family and friends and coworkers and so on so that they can hear the gospel, so they can see a biblical vision of God and see their desperate need for Christ because of their sin before this holy God. There is no salvation apart from those things. And so much of evangelism today is just life improvement kind of stuff. You just need a better life. Your marriage failing, your kids rebellious, your workplace hard. Just come to Jesus. He'll fix it all. That's not evangelism. That's not evangelism. That's self-help. I mean, that's leaving people in their sin expecting a better life. It doesn't work. We would rather have them come on their knees before God crying out, what must I do to be saved? Because we sing the holiness of God. We sing the holiness of God. We're going to close with a song called O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. It's a boring old hymn. (laughs) And we're going to torture you for the next few minutes and ask you to sing it. Why? A right response to God and what he's done for you in Christ is to plead with God for a thousand more to come and sing his praises. When you get a vision of God like we see in Hebrews, when you see what he has saved you from in your sin, the very next concern you have is that thousands more hear of this God. That's what we're going to sing. So I could have the musicians come on up here. I want you to sing this as a prayer. I'm not really concerned if you like it or like its style. The heart of this song is rich. Sing it as a prayer to God for thousands of Rhinelandarians to come to Christ and praise him because he's worthy. Let's stand and sing. All right, I was going to ask her to put up the lyrics, but it's easier for me just to read them. You have just sung, this is the charge. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. Who are you in that? The foulest. What has Christ done? Made you clean. That's the charge. Believe that. May God bless you and keep you. May God be gracious to you. I've just messed that all up. <laughs> let, me, let me start over. <laughs> uh, it's, it's gone from my memory and I didn't write it down. May God bless you and keep you. Yes, yes. All right. May God bless you and keep you. May God uh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And amen. I love you. Have a good week in the Lord.